Let me actually pull my phone out of my pocket so I can put this in there. And let me kick us off with prayer real quick, and then we'll jump into Mark 3 tonight, all right? Dear God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your sovereignty. Um, We thank you uh, for um, bringing all of that um, to earth in the person of your Son, and uh, thank you for the ways he showed us who you are and the things he taught us about your kingdom. And thank you most of all for the things he did for us in saving us. Um, Lord, we want to know you more. And we want to know um, your son in order to do that. And so may your spirit open our eyes and our hearts as we read your word tonight. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so we are in Mark 3 tonight. Mark 3, starting in verse 7, if you want to go ahead and go there. Um, last week, here's, let me kind of fill in our context a little bit and get us, get us caught up. So, last week we, were, we did all of two in the first six verses of three, and what we saw there was a series of, of different stories about different confrontations that Jesus had with the religious leaders of the day there, the Jewish religious leaders there in Palestine. And we saw that happen over a number of different things. The first one is um, when he heals the paralytic who's lowered down through that roof. And in Sunday school, all the focus gets on, all the focus is kind of put on this roof that gets jacked up and these four friends who are really good buddies to take him there, but the main focus Mark puts on there is Jesus' first words to the man when he sees him is, um, your sins are forgiven. And, and that's actually a really weird statement to make um, because I can't forgive sins that haven't been done against me, right? So like if Elena goes over and punches Alec in the face, I can't go over to Elena and say, I forgive you, Elena, right? Because Alex's going, what the crap, man? I'm, I, you don't get to forgive that. Like that's, she did that to me. Um, and, and so when, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, effectively he's saying every one of your sins was against me. And, and the, the Pharisees in the room catch that. That's why they call it blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins because sins, all sins are ultimately against him. So when Jesus makes that, that's a big deal. He also messes with their perceptions in the way that he is eating with and hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, people who would have been ceremonially unclean and would have, by their standards, made Jesus unclean and unfit. And then he breaks Sabbath rules or disregards some of their major traditions about the Sabbath. And so in a number of ways, we see him confronting and even rebuking their thinking on what God should be like and and what the Messiah should be like. And he challenges them and he angers them until at the very end, the very last sentence of the very last story is when he heals a man on the Sabbath. He's doing work on the Sabbath. And, and he's angry at them, it says, and they're clearly angry at him because this is the last set, sentence. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So at this point, when, when Mark lines up how much conflict there is between and, and how frustrated they are, he ends with this saying, they go out and they plot with the Herodians. That would have been this group in support of Herod and his family, which means it's a group that is basically in support of the Roman occupation. 
Like, they're the Jews who are kind of glad that the Romans are there because they're with the Herodians and the Herodians are benefiting. Pharisees aren't normally probably going to be mixing with those. But, but um, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so they, they begin to plot with the Herodians how they can destroy him. And so that's going to move into our very next verse. But what we're going to see tonight is four different groups that come to Jesus with four different responses to him and how he is, what he looks like. So let's go into verse 7 and verse 12. Uh, verse 7 through verse 12, actually. Alec, you go ahead and read that for me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Alright, so after this verse about the Pharisees and the Herodians plotting against Jesus, what's the next line? And he withdrew to the sea. And so he kind of moves outside of the cities and the towns for a little bit out to the sea. Some of that may be practical um, in nature and kind of the, the, the way he's going about his ministry. You actually won't see him after these encounters with the, um, with, the, with the scribes, with the Pharisees in the synagogues. That's kind of their home turf. You won't see him in the synagogues again, I think, until chapter 6. And that will be the only time in the gospel. Like he's basically done going through the Jewish religious systems. He's done with people who are too hard-hearted to listen. And so he moves out from there and moves out to this wilderness. It also seems to be more than just kind of um, tactical or strategic, maybe even practical, because as Mark says, the crowds are coming around him so much that like, it looks like they might crush him. People are done waiting for Jesus to come touch them. They're throwing themselves at him trying to touch him. And so he literally, he tells his disciples, be ready with the boat. Like, I might need to jump on this thing at any time. It's getting that crazy. It's getting that hectic around them. Um, and so they are coming to him literally from everywhere. So Mark describes these different regions. Jesus' ministry is primarily taking place in Galilee. And, and these are the regions that we see him describing in this passage, that they came from Galilee, which is where he's at, but also from Judea and Jerusalem, the capital, from Edomia and from beyond the Jordan. We call this the Transjordan area. That's what a number of they called the Transjordan tribes lived over here. Um, and also from Tyre and Sidon up here. And so literally what Mark is describing is everywhere. There, there's actually only one place that he doesn't mention in there, which is Samaria. And this is this region where kind of what the Jews consider the half-breeds, these sort of half-Jewish people who had long ago married in with other Gentile people and become kind of their own thing. They, they did not get along very well. So these don't get mentioned, but everything around it does. What Mark is doing, and scholars wonder if this is intentional, but he just described the borders of the original 12 tribes of Israel. He just described actually the land of Israel when it was at its height of power under King David. 
And, and, and so some scholars think that actually what Mark is doing is hinting at something because one of the prophecies that was always made about the Messiah is when God came back and when God redeemed His people, He was going to restore the land again. And, and it almost sounds like Mark might be saying, Psst, it's happening. Like, do you see it? Do you see what's taking place here when all of these things are coming back again and coming back together? So very interesting there. Um, this section that we just read appears to be a little bit of a transition. Um, so, so it kind of summarizes Jesus' ministry. No, notice there's no specific incidents that's described. It just kind of summarizes he's preaching, um, he's healing, he's casting out demons, they're crying around him, and, and the crowds are coming. Now the crowds come to Jesus mostly interested in what he does and less interested in what he says. Less interested in this kingdom that he teaches about. At least it appears to be that way. Um, they're interested in the cool things that are happening. But now we move into another group. Alec, read verses 13 through 15 for us. And he went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. All right, so the second group that we see is the 12. He says there's, there's the crowds that are coming for the show and to see some amazing things, but then there is, he says, he pulls this group with him that is more devoted and that follows him. We don't know if it's just the 12. Some seem to make it think, I believe Luke points out that there's a larger group, and we know that at one point there's a group of kind of 72, and so it may be that big, and then from this group he appoints these 12 that he calls apostles. Um, that word apostle literally means um, one sent out, the one who is sent out. And, and so it kind of is going to make sense that they're going to be sent out, but that's not the only thing Mark says they do. There's at least two major criteria for what it means to be an apostle. The first is that they are with him, that they spend time with him and learn from him and follow him and see what he does and how he lives and what he teaches, and then they will be sent out. Um, to minister on behalf, which is made up, Mark lists preaching, uh, preaching the kingdom, and then also casting out demons. There is a lot of focus on that in this section here. Um, read verses 16 through 18, Alec. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Um, all the way down to Judas there, okay. verse 18. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. There you go. So notice what he shifts though because Mark uses the word, he says he calls them apostles. That's the last time he uses the word. Doesn't do it anymore after that. And the apostles are big players in the church. This is, we call them, so they're apostles in the church, but we differentiate from what we call kind of lowercase apostles, that is just anyone sent out, a church planter or a missionary, and the capital A apostles, that is the twelve that were with him and that knew him and that were um, in ministry with him, and, and they're the ones with kind of an extra level of authority and inspiration. So they're really big, but he never uses this word apostle again. Instead, he uses what? Well, he uses disciples, but he refers to these twelve as the twelve. That's what he does from here on out. He calls them the twelve. 
Why? Why does he want to stress the 12? Why not say apostles? Why does he keep focusing on that number? And, and for that matter, why does Jesus pick 12 specifically? Why not 10? Why not 11? Would have saved him some trouble if he'd have left Judas off that list, right? Why not, why not 13? Why, why, why 12? Because, because there are 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is done with the religious leaders of Israel, but that doesn't mean He's done with Israel. That doesn't mean He's done restoring God's people. And so again, there's another hint here when He says He's picking 12, and I think there's a reason that Mark stresses 12 over and over again. The 12 tribes are coming back. By the way, there's only two tribes left by this time. Ten of them got lost when Assyria came in in 722 and ripped a bunch of them out of their homelands. The ones that were left, as I said, got married into these Gentiles that got put in the land. And so ten of the tribes are gone. There's, there's only actually these other two left. And so that becomes kind of an interesting statement. But, but there seems to be a movement to restore this is, is what seems to be happening there. The first three that he mentions of this group. He mentions Simon, Simon, whom he calls what? Peter. And then James and John. Those are actually, those will be the inner three. So there's, there's moments when Jesus goes and he only takes them in. And he doesn't take the others. Every now and then, Andrew gets to go too. He's like that dude. He's, he's definitely the, uh, the fifth wheel, right? And so he's the guy who sometimes gets to be in on the party and then a lot of times he's hanging out with the other ones. Um, but but James and John and Peter are the three that are always kind of with him. He uses this weird name, Boanerges, and, and, and people actually, scholars struggle to know exactly how to translate that. It's not a Greek word, um, but it seems to be this sons of thunder. And even that, they go, we don't know exactly what it is, except for um, maybe that they've, they seem to have a temper a little bit, James and John. Like James and John are the ones when one time Jesus is passing through Samaria and they won't let him in. James and John are like, let's burn this thing down, Jesus. <laughs> right? And, and what's awesome is they're the ones who say they'll do it. They're like, do you want us to call fire down, Jesus? Do you want us to take care of this? You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and so people think that maybe they, that it's like a, it's a temper thing or an angry thing that, that, that he gives them this name. Um, Read uh, verses... Dude, did I skip? Um, did you take us down to 19 or 18? 19. Okay, good. Um, read verses 20 to 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Alright, so Mark does this a couple times, and this is what you're going to see. He starts in on a story, and then he's going to stop, and he's going to move to another story, and then he's going to come back to this one. And, and part of that is somewhat chronological. He's telling you, the family gets up and they start going. Meanwhile, these scribes come, we'll see, and then later he'll get to the family actually arriving. So part of that is chronological, but, but part of it seems to be he wants to show you that he's tying these two stories together. Um, that he sandwiches the family around the scribes kind of for this reason. Um, so, so the crowds come, and their response to Jesus is, let's see what he can do. This is amazing. You've got to come see this. Could he heal me? Can Those kinds of things. The, the apostles come, the disciples come to follow him, and they don't get him fully. They don't understand him. If, if you read the Gospels thinking the disciples are your model for discipleship, then you are going to be really messed up. 
okay, because they're, they're not a good model. They're messed up and they misunderstand, but they are trying to follow him. That's their response. The family's response is to think that Jesus is crazy. He's, he's out of his mind. He's making these incredible, um, incredible claims and these grandiose statements about he's the bridegroom that everybody's been waiting for. And when the bridegroom's there, it's time to celebrate. And so they start to worry about him. And these big crowds are gathering around him. And, and that could actually cause trouble in Roman-occupied Palestine. Romans did not take kindly to rioting of any kind like that. And so, so they're worried about him. And they go, it says, to seize him. It's like a word for like arrest, like we're going to grab him and take him home for his own good. Now this is actually kind of fascinating because Joseph isn't mentioned, which means he's probably actually dead by now. But his mother and his brothers are mentioned and they're coming to get him and bring him back because he's crazy. But, but here's what's so weird is it mentions his mother, Mary, the same one who 30-ish years ago, an angel appeared to and said that you're pregnant um, by the Holy Spirit and, and that the one in you is going to be like the son of the living God and do these amazing things. And, and now 30 years later, here she comes to Jesus to say, you're, you're losing it, son. Like how, how weird is that? And maybe even like difficult would that be for Jesus? Like you too, mom? Like, like I expect maybe the scribes to not get it. Everyone else expects them to get it, but, but you, and, and, and truthfully, that may have been even a reason. We, we forget a lot of times, we, we talk about the scribes and Pharisees as being bad and legalistic and da-da-da. They loved them. The Jewish people honored them as the more holy ones, as the more righteous ones. And why is my son continually fighting against them? And why is he continually going against the laws that they're trying to keep for us? And so... For that reason and for other reasons, it seems she comes and she wants to take him away. Now we come to another group, and this is the harshest response of all of these. Alec, let's read verses 22 through 27. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay. So, this is the fourth response, and that is the most antagonistic with the scribes, the Pharisees, who come and they claim that the work that Jesus is doing, the casting out of demons, is done um, not by anything holy or right or good, but by something evil and unholy. This Beelzebul, they say. And, and we don't know the exact origins of this word. Some think it's kind of a playoff like an old Philistine god, uh, the name of an old Philistine god. It, it means like Lord of the House. Some kind of bring it to this Lord of the Flies idea. Um, but, but we don't know if, if Beelzebul was associated with Satan himself or if he was considered to be kind of by them the prince of demons, maybe kind of second beneath Satan. But the idea is the same, that it's by Satan's power that he's doing these things. Now this statement is both tragic because of how off they are and how 
antagonistic towards Jesus and the Holy Spirit they are, but also pretty fascinating because they don't deny that something amazing is happening. Like they can't. All they can do is chalk it up to something wicked. They can't get around the fact that there's crazy and amazing things happening. That actually seems to ring true for the next several hundred years of of Jewish history. So in the Babylonian Talmud, which is this kind of series of writings and teachings by earlier rabbis and then kind of explanations of those teachings by later rabbis, you actually have this statement. It's talking about how when a person is accused and ready to be executed, that for a time before they're executed, you have somebody walk before them and declare what their offense is. And so this is their offense before them, and so people can kind of know and maybe even say, no, come and defend them. And so it's talking about this, and then they use an example. So for example, this is what it says. For example, it has been taught to us that on the eve of the Passover they hanged Yeshu, and an announcer went out in front of him for 40 days saying, he is going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed and led Israel astray. Anyone who knows anything in his favor, let him come and plead in his behalf. But not having found anything in his favor, they hanged him on the eve of Passover. So it says, for example, there was this guy named Yeshu, which by the way, Yeshua, Jesus. So there was this guy named Jesus several hundred years ago on the eve of Passover and and he was doing all this sorcery and misleading the people and that's why they killed him, is what they say. So even several hundred years later, this is fascinating, now they don't get all the details and the facts right, but even several hundred years later, the claim is not that he was nothing and he couldn't do anything. It's, yeah, I mean, he was doing amazing things, but it couldn't have been by God had to have been sorcery, had to have been witchcraft, and so they killed him. I find that fascinating, that that even this source outside of the Bible seems to think of this Yeshua as doing amazing things. Most scholars do believe that that is this Yeshua, this Jesus, the one killed on the Passover, as our Bible says. Um, And so they come and they go to this Jesus response to them in parables and says, like, do you not see the inconsistency of your logic here? That if I'm working for Satan, what am I doing like kicking Satan's, yeah, beating him up? Why am I, why am I working? It sounds weird to say, I heard that in the movie War Room, the phrase, devil, you just got your butt kicked happens. And so for that reason, I never want to say that. Okay. So, um, so why is he like, why is he attacking the devil is what he said. Um, is, is the question. If these two things are fighting against each other, it can't stand. You guys know that phrase, a house divided, right? You've seen the license plate with the O-U-O-S-U, a house divided, right? And, and it's, it's a big serious thing, you know. 20-year-olds throwing a football around. Big serious thing. And so, um, but, but that origin actually doesn't come from that serious thing. It comes from, in American history, something a little bit more serious, which is who and what? There you go. In the Civil War, but... But, but Abe didn't come up with it himself, actually. Abraham got it from the Bible. And so he's, he actually, the origins of it is Jesus' statement here. And so he says, no, 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 these two things from the same house, from the same faction, can't be attacking each other, so let me give you an alternative explanation. That there's a really strong man in a house, and somebody stronger than him has come and is now raiding his territory. That somebody stronger than him is now plundering his house and kicking him out. And so, 
this is, this is the explanation. And it can't be that, which means it has to be that someone better than him, someone stronger, someone greater is now here, is what he says to them. And then Jesus goes into one of the scariest statements in the Bible. So Alec, read verses 28 through 30. Okay. Um, says, I tell you this, all the sins of the children of men will be forgiven except for this one. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin or an unpardonable sin. How many of you guys have heard of this, this phrase? The unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. How many of you have stayed up at night going, did I do that? Wondering like, yes. Like, I, like, a lot of Christians have kind of wrestled with this. Like, what if I did it? What if, what if I did, I don't know what it is, but I'm worried that maybe it happened somehow, you know what I mean? And, and so a lot of people have kind of wondered um, what this is, why this is. And so the first question is, why is it unforgivable? Why does a person who commits it not get forgiven? Why is it considered an eternal sin? And in order to answer that, we do have to actually clarify what is it. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Um, here is, here's kind of to, to help us understand. What, what is going on is that these scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, have front row seats to Jesus' actions and words. They can see His ministry right there before His eyes and the amazing things they do. And then rather than actually take it in and accept it, they speak against it. And they work against it. And they harden their own hearts to it. Rather than seeing the Spirit's work, which that is what Jesus does His ministry by, rather than seeing the Spirit's work for what it is, they say that the Holy Spirit who's acting is actually the devil. That His work is the work of Satan. And so they speak directly against the Spirit in their working on Him. Now, this appears to be like more than just ignorance. Like more than just they don't get it. And I think that might be the devil, but really, no, it's more than that. Um, I, I think so. P Paul says even this um, in 1 Tim Timothy 1.13 that he was a blasphemer. Um, and, and Paul was, what was his like, political party, his affiliation? Pharisee. Pharisee. Which means, and I, I can't prove this, which means there's a really good chance that Paul may have said something like this about Jesus himself. He was a Pharisee. He hated Jesus. Surely he believed a lot of the same things that the scribes, the Pharisees believed about him. And he says, I was a blasphemer, and yet God had profound mercy on me and forgave me. So, so what do we do with this? What's, what's going on here? I, I believe, this is what pretty much every commentary kind of focuses on, is that the issue is not that God is so angry or the Spirit Himself is so offended that He will no longer forgive, but that these people have come to a place where they have hardened their heart beyond seeking forgiveness. When you cut yourself off from the very Spirit who opens a person's heart to Jesus, what hope is there for you? When you push so hard directly against it, when you are so openly... Um, antagonistic, um, then, then there comes a place where your heart hardens, where you have so blinded yourself that you won't take Him if He's there in front of you. 
that you wouldn't take the forgiveness if it was offered to you. So here's kind of a, a piece of maybe good news for you. Like if you're worried that you've considered or that you've like done the unforgivable sin, that's a great sign that you haven't. Like if you're concerned about that, then that shows you that, that like your heart is not at that place yet. Um, and so no need to stay up at night over those things. But, but it is always like it's, it's helpful to be thinking of you like that, that we can't harden our hearts to such a degree and to always be trying to keep a sensitive heart to Jesus and to His Spirit that reveals Him. Um, let's read verses 31 through 35. Now the family arrives. Okay, it's, it's difficult to grasp how um, radical and countercultural the statement Jesus just made was back then. Um, you didn't have back then like a personal individual identity. It's just not how that worked. Your identity was derived directly from your community and most importantly your family um, that you lived with, your social status, your economic status. Like you don't decide what major you're going to be back then, right? Like you do what your parents did. It's just what you, that's, that's who you are. You were born, Jesus was born a carpenter, right? Um, because that's what his dad did. And so that's, that's just what you do back then. And, and, and you don't have an identity outside yourself. So to be rejected by your family or to reject your family means you are rejecting life. You are rejecting your identity. You are rejecting your very... So like that you lose everything in that process. And so when Jesus says this statement, the people come to him, right? And they say, hey, by the way, Jesus, hate to interrupt this, everybody, but Jesus' family is outside. So like kind of the expectation, he's just going to get up and go out there or, or have them come in. When Jesus says, who's my mom and my brothers? Like, I don't know who you're talking about. Like the room would gasp. You, know, you don't say those things. You don't, you don't do those things. You have a you have a responsibility to your family. And, and yes, it's true, you have responsibility first to God, but you never have responsibility to the people in the room you're hanging out with above your family. And so when Jesus says, no, 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 no not them, these. This is my family now. That would have been crazy. That would have been insane and, and hard for us to grasp today, but it still has some profound implications for us today. And, and that's what Rachel is going to talk to you about in just a couple minutes. So take a break. If you need to use the restroom or whatever, stand up, do that. And then uh, we'll get back up here again. Okay, so first of all, Drew came walking in without camera, and I thought he was going to be filming me teaching, and I freaked out when he told me that what we were really doing. It's much better. Also, for anyone who did not notice, Drew and I are matching. Oh, my goodness. Hashtag twinning. This is campus ministry uniform. Wait. Summit shirts. There you have it. What were you saying? I'm sorry. Yep, I'm on. We're going. We're good. Okay, so... Um, we're going to jump in. Uh, like Drew said, I, just, I want to take a little bit of a bigger look at 
um, what the Bible has to say about family and what Jesus is really calling us to in this passage um, and what our responsibility what our responsibility is because it's kind of a tough text. Um, and like Drew said, you know, it would have been hard in that day, but it's still hard now. It's still hard now. You have texts like the one we just read, um, and then this one, Luke 14, 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like, that's kind of heavy hitting. I mean, I couldn't try to sugarcoat that if I tried. There's nothing that you can do to make that, to nice that verse up. And what Jesus is saying in here is that he's number one. That if you're going to follow him, he comes first always, above everything. That our love for him, that our adoration for him, that our swearing allegiance to him is so great that everything else in life that we care about, it looks like hate. That's what he's saying here. And, you know, family looks different for everybody. Nobody has a perfect family. But for most of us, we love our family, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys. We, Brandon says maybe, kind of. Every family has their moments. But, you know, we grow up with our siblings, right? Playing in the backyard, getting dirty, little girls playing dolls and dreaming of their wedding day, that kind of stuff. Like, you grow up with your siblings. There's fights, but they're your sibling, right? So you can say something about them, but if anybody else does, you're coming after them, right? And your mom and dad might drive you crazy, but they're your mom, your dad. They raised you, and we love them. And the family is God's design. Just, I want to make sure that we're understanding that God made us relationally in his image. The family was God's idea. He brought Adam and Eve together and he told them to start a family. But then we see this, this text here, and, and we see what we just talked about, and we realize that following Jesus means being okay with leaving family behind. Most of us living here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, aren't really going to experience the kind of persecution that says, um, my family's now going to kill me because I'm following Jesus, or my family's going to completely disown me because I'm following Jesus. But I do think that this is going to mean you're going to encounter conflict. And I think it's especially applicable for college students. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I have seen over the years time and time and time again where a college student comes to school and you start to create your own life. And you start to kind of figure out who you are and what you're going to do. And it's an exciting time and you're making tons of decisions. And for most of you, there's a ton of growth that happens while you're here. Um, and for a lot of you, a lot of that growth is um, making your faith your own and real for the first time. And so for many students, it looks like, hey, I am just like a heart on fire for Jesus. Like my faith is becoming real to me. This is no longer, you know, something that I heard in Sunday school or that I grew up. All of a sudden, I'm deciding me, myself, as an adult, living on my own, I am following Jesus. And as you start to answer that call and Jesus takes you deeper and deeper, he starts to mess with your life. And um, <laughs> well-meaning, loving family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, start to get really concerned. 
because there, there are many of them who are okay with you following Jesus as long as that looks like the American dream and Jesus fitting inside of that. They're okay with you following Jesus as long as that looks like a successful life by the world's definition and me being a good person and I go to church and I love Jesus. But when you start answering the call to some of those harder things, it gets tough. And maybe you're sitting around a Thanksgiving table and you've been gone a year, two years, God's doing a lot in your life and that sibling that you were so close with suddenly you don't have anything in common anymore because you're living two different lives. And all of a sudden your parents are talking to you about their concerns. That's just getting to be a little too much Jesus. They're getting to be a little too radical. And so we have to say, that's my question for you. Like, are you okay with leaving your family behind if that's what God calls you to do? Um, and, and it might not you know, look exactly like some of the things I'm going to describe, but I guarantee you there will come a point in your life where there will be someone that you love that will be somewhere in your family that's going to have a problem with you following Jesus. You're going to have to be okay with that, Jesus says, if you're going to be a follower of his. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight is just going to be stories about my own experience and dealing with family and then um, just some, some people who God's really worked in their life and we can be encouraged by. I just want to take a side note and make sure that you know, like, I'm, I'm up here and I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be transparent. None of this is so that anybody leaves here saying, wow, those people are awesome. It's not that at all. The stuff I'm going to be sharing is meant to be an encouragement to you in your walk with Jesus. And it's all about what the Holy Spirit has done through people who said yes to him and who said yes to his call. Um, and so I, like, I want you to know that my husband and I, we've experienced this big time, firsthand. My, my husband was an architecture student here at OSU. He grew up in a family with high expectation. This is what you will do. This is who you will be. This is how you will live. Um, and it was pursuit of the American dream 100%. That's how to have a successful life. This is the way that you're going to live. And so they groomed him, and he fought against it in high school. But they, they groomed him in their minds um, to, to live this wonderful life that they had planned for him. He's super gifted in things that go along with being an architect, and so he excelled. Um, big time in that area and it, it was just success after success and he was doing phenomenal and he was interning with a prestigious firm on the east coast several summers and he had a job all lined up before graduation and was prepared to take on that life and, and to do this and two weeks before graduation he came home and said we were married it's about six seven years ago and said to me um i'm not going to do that whole architect thing god's calling me into ministry so i'm going to graduate and then I'm going back to school. <laughs> That's what he said to me, and I may have cried. But I quickly got on board. <laughs> I, it took me a, a minute, but, um, but I quickly got on board, and I was excited about that. His family, not so much, you guys. There were years of hard conversations. There were years of them finding jobs. There were years of belittling comments and statements and how serious you're taking that Jesus thing and are you going to get a real job. There were years of that. I'm really happy to tell you that they've come around and they're supportive and God has been working in their life and they've been growing. It's been incredible to watch. But here's the thing, like Ryan, that's my husband, he didn't know that when he said yes to Jesus. He didn't know they would come around. He said yes to the possibility of the rest of his life hanging with attention. 
and, and I love his family dearly, but let me tell you, there was tension. I mean, we do not approve. It was there. It was heavy. It was present at every family gathering. It, it was hidden, slipped in, different conversations. It was there. And for somebody like me who is a recovering approval addiction, I don't know what you want to say. God's working with me on that continually. That was so hard for me. It was hard for me to just sit there and know, like, I love my husband's family and I want them, you know, to be supportive of us and what we're doing. And yeah, they're so not. They are so not. They think we're just screwing our lives up. That's what it was. Glory to God that they came around, but they might not have. Hopefully, uh, most of you here heard Claire, Claire Mitchell. She was here a couple of weeks ago, and she talked like just for a few minutes before we did our study. She just arrived today at her first destination, but she graduated in May, and then she's taking a year to travel the world on a mission trip to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to serve. Guess what? Her family is not happy. Maybe I wouldn't go that far. They've accepted it. Her family is not supportive at all. Her dad did not go to see her off. But Claire is saying yes to Jesus, yes to obedience, yes that he's worth it. She's never going to regret that. Following Jesus is almost never easy, but it is always, always, always worth it. No matter what it looks like. Bible's got more to say about family. Um, John 19, 25 through 27. I want to just paint this picture for you. We see Jesus over here, what he's just said. He pretty much told his mother and his brothers to get lost, right? I mean, that's what he said. Can you imagine? I mean, that's embarrassing in that culture, the way that he acted and what he did to them. There was, there was some shame that went along with that. Um, but then we see Jesus. He's carried his cross. He's beaten to a pulp. He's hanging. He's about to die. And one of the last things that he does before he draws his final breath is this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That tells us following Jesus means being faithful where you're at, and that includes loving and caring for the family God has given you. You're going to hear that phrase a lot this year, being faithful where you're at. We're going to talk to you a lot about that because we believe that God has planted you where he's planted you for a reason and that you have a purpose and a calling. Not just to be a consumer, but to love those around you and to serve and to further the kingdom of God. So we don't get to just disown our family. We have a responsibility to love them and you know what? If your entire family loves Jesus, that is awesome. Let me tell you to say thank you to him because that is so, so rare. That is so, so rare. That doesn't get you out of this, though. Like, understand that if your whole family loves Jesus, it might look like you caring for the widow who is your grandma. And on Sundays, you're spending 30 minutes picking up the phone, easing some of her loneliness, asking her how you can pray for her, just being there for her. Maybe it's holding one another accountable. I'll tell you a big one, I think. I think when your whole family is believers, holidays and, and family get-togethers suddenly become more than just your family. I think you open up your home and you invite people in. I have some of my family who's really, really good at this. I can't tell you the last time that there was some sort of gathering where there wasn't like somebody just getting out of prison 
or somebody who's been orphaned or a foster kid have one part of my family who does this so, so well. They just open it up to anybody and they love on them. Um, for some of you, maybe loving your family well, um, maybe it's a little bit different because everybody in your family's lost. And so like that means that when you take a break from school and you go home, it's not a break. You're there praying, serving, looking for opportunities, hoping to have a moment to share the gospel, hoping to have a moment where God softens a heart and you can get through. Maybe that's what it looks like for you. I'm guessing probably a lot of you, though, are going to fall where I do, which is that some of my family loves and follows Jesus and some of my family doesn't. This particular thing really, really hits home for me um, right now. I'm just going to share a little bit about what's going on with my family. But um, I have a huge family. I have, I have four brothers and two sisters. One mom and dad. We're not Catholic, but that's my family. And um, a lot of my siblings were all super close. A lot of them like really love and follow Jesus, most of them actually. I have one brother that I have been, I would say, the closest to growing up. He's my little brother. His name is Joey. He's 25. For about the last probably eight, eight to ten years, God has burdened me. I mean heavy for him. And it started with just realizing that Mm, you're starting to kind of get into high school and make some bad decisions. And maybe I need to really be more invested in your life. And then it, it continued spiraling, got more and more concerned. There was a period of time um, where he was a freshman in college, I think, at UCO, and I was, I was making that trek every week, driving an hour to try to sit down and open up the Bible with him and just have some conversations and answer some of his questions and try to just be there for him and, and kind of work through some of that with him. But I just was increasingly alarmed. This is kind of going off the deep end. It was starting to spiral out of control. Four years ago, I hit that point where, you know, we've had enough of these little talks. And God started convicting me. I think it was a sermon I heard at Sunnybrook. But convicting me heavily that you know, the most loving thing that we can do is sit across from the people that we love and tell them that they're going to hell and share Jesus with them, if that's what's going on in their life. And I knew that's what had to happen in this particular situation. There had been enough time invested, enough things had happened, and I knew that God was calling me to have that conversation. I, any peacemakers in here, okay? Like, I cannot tell you. I, am, I, I run from the conflict. Keep it over there. I don't want any part of it. It's my typical M.O., like I'm flying under the radar. That's 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 me. Um, but I knew I had I knew I had to have this conversation. So four years ago, I sat in a little pizza place and sat across from my brother and looked him in the eye and told him that I love you and I am seriously concerned and I don't think that you're a Christian and, and I know that you know the truth, but I think that you are throwing your life away. And it was hard. It was really hard. That it was not fun. And he told me I was wrong. You know. Um, and, and I mean, he, he wasn't hateful about it, but he, he told me I was wrong. And I left there, and I, I think I probably, you know, talked to my husband, Ryan, and just said, like, you know, I did it, but nothing came of it, absolutely nothing. It went in one ear and out the other. Um, nothing came of it. So four years go by, kind of come up to this present time. There have been a few more conversations um, that I've been able to intentionally have and to love on him. Um, but in July... Joey was diagnosed with a really serious, rare, aggressive cancer. 
and he is now fighting for his life. And because of that, God has opened up the doors for me to have some more conversations with him about God and who God is and what that looks like in our lives. And he brought up and he told me, you know that conversation we had four years ago when you told me that I was going to hell? You're right. And I thought about that a lot over the last four years. Blew me away. I did not think that he would remember that. And so I first just want to encourage you, like if God's calling you to do something and you think that you see no fruit, you do not know what the Holy Spirit is doing. You don't. Our job is to be faithful to what he's asking us to do. The results are his business. I was blown away that that happened. You know what loving my family is looking for, uh, looking like right now for me? It, it's basically saying, um, I'm going to walk with my brother through this. I'm going to be there while he's struggling through these questions, while he is losing all of his hair and he's losing weight so rapidly and has dark circles under his eyes and he is so sick. My job is to be there. My job is to love him through that, to pray for him, and to be ready with those hard questions. And so practically, I'll tell you, I felt very convicted, my husband and I, that this means that we are packing our family up once a week and driving an hour and a half and being there. And then we are packing back up and going home. I have two kids, y'all, a very active two-year-old you don't even know, and a four-month-old. <laughs> to pack up all their stuff, that takes like half the day, okay? I just want to tell you, I'm saying that so you know, like nothing about this is convenient. It's incredibly inconvenient. Some weeks I've been so busy, there was one week, um, I knew I had to get up at 5 or 6 the next morning, but the week was so crazy, it came to 8 o'clock putting my kids to bed, and I got in that car because I felt like God wanted me to do it. And I drove, and I sat with my brother on our front porch, and I listened, and I sat with him, and I prayed for him. Like, that's what it looks like right now. So I don't know what it looks like for you, but it looks like something. What is God asking you to do? How is he asking you to love your family? Understand that we are all on mission. Get with him and find out. Get with him and find out what he's wanting you to do. Um, I want to kind of go back to our text we started with, which was Mark 3, 34 and 35. And Jesus, looking at those who sat around him, said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Following Jesus means we have a new family, and that's the church. I want you guys to just look around for a minute. Like, that's what Jesus was saying. I mean, he was saying, these people, this is your family. This is your family. We're called to love and serve and treat one another as family. And you know what that means? It means being uncomfortable. It means doing hard things. It means sacrificing this is why we do table groups, you guys. And I want to push you to love more than you ever have this year in biblical community. And I want to push you to be more open and honest than you ever have before in biblical community for the sake of the church. That we are many members, one body, one bride. This is family. This is it. Some of you may um, have heard of a guy called Hudson Taylor. Amazing, amazing story. I mean, God used him incredibly in the 1800s. Um, he was a missionary to China, 
one of the first. And um, his parents actually, this is, this is an actual prayer that they prayed um, before he was born. It says this, Dear God, if you should give us a son, grant that he may work for you in China. It's cool, right? Guess what God granted? And uh, by the time like that came around and it was time for him to go, um, his father had passed away and his mother was widowed. And it was the 1800s, so there was no FaceTime. And there was no hopping on a plane. So when they prayed this prayer, they knew that they were saying, God, give us some, a child who, if you would, is going to go preach the gospel. And when he leaves, that we will never see again on earth. That's what they prayed. We have actually a journal entry that he writes, that Hudson writes, about this kind of this goodbye and send-off with, with his mother. And I want to read that to you. It says this, My beloved mother had come over to Liverpool to see me off. Never shall I forget that day, nor how she went with me into the cabin that was to be my home for nearly six long months. With a mother's loving hand, she smoothed the little bed. She sat by my side and joined in the last hymn we should sing together before parting. We knelt down and she prayed the last mother's prayer I was to hear before leaving for China. Then notice was given that we must separate and we had to say goodbye, never expecting to meet on earth again. For my sake, she restrained her feelings as much as possible. We parted and she went ashore giving me her blessing. I stood alone on the deck and she followed the ship as we moved toward the dock gates. As we passed through the gates and the separation really commenced, never shall I forget the cry of anguish wrung from that mother's heart. It went through me like a knife. I never knew so fully until then what God so loved the world meant. And I am quite sure my precious mother learned more of the love of God for the perishing in that one hour than in all her life before. And by the end of Hudson Taylor's life in 1905, he had been used by God to found the China Inland Mission. There were 205 preaching stations, 849 missionaries, and 125,000 Chinese Christians, a testimony of a life absolutely surrendered to God. Hudson Taylor's mother loved Jesus and the church more than her desire to be with her son. She loved her future brothers and sisters in Christ more. And she said yes to Jesus even though that was a painful, painful sacrifice, even though that was hard, even though it cost. And so I don't know which of these three areas God's calling you to grow right now and tonight, um, but he's calling you to do something, whether that is being okay with the fact that I might never have my parents' approval, such a huge one for college students, whether it is that I have a hard time being around my family. Maybe you have a hard time even liking or loving your family, but understand that God's calling you to do more. Or maybe you really need to understand that Jesus is absolutely, fundamentally, the overarching theme here, calling us to love the church like family. And that doesn't mean just sitting back and waiting for somebody to speak up and say that they have a need. Okay? I want you guys to get that. It means that you go and you seek it out. And you love. Right now, everything that we're going through with my brother, I can't tell you how grateful I am 
to be part of a church that treats me like family. Because you know what? I have people calling me, texting me, bringing me food. I, one day, my husband was gone. He was at family camp. I was about to load all my kids up and take them by myself. My friend Katie, and she texted me. She said, what are you doing today? And I told her, I'm about to load my kids up. I'm taking them. It's going to be hard to try to get any time with my brother because I'll have them, but I'm going to be there. She said, no, you're not. Bring them to me on the way out of town. You're dropping them off. She didn't wait. So grateful. So grateful. Turn around and do that for others. And then here's what I also want to say to some of you with prideful hearts. Confess that and let the church serve you. Be family to one another. Be okay with asking for help. Be okay with that need. Like, we're made to do that. When you say, no, I don't need that, I'm just going to strong arm it and I'm just going to barrel my way through, you're robbing somebody else of the blessing of being able to obey God and say yes. I want you to get that. Um, we're all called to sacrifice different ways. We're all called to, to love the church different ways. But there's a, there's a group I want to kind of just call out for a minute and pay a little bit of particular attention to. If you are a believer in this room and you are the only one in your immediate family, I want you to stand up. Wow. That's incredible. That ruins my whole plan. <laughs> okay, if you are a believer in this room and you're not the only one in your immediate family but almost, I want you to stand up. I want you guys to look around. We all need to be family to one another, but these guys need our support and they need our prayer. And we're going to spend some time just gathering around them in groups. There's three things that I want you to pray for. The first thing I want you to pray is that God would help you to love them like the family that they are and to be there for what they need. The second thing that I want you to pray is that God would encourage them and sustain them while they are on mission and feeling super alone. And the third thing I want you to pray for is I want you to pray for their families, that their families would come to know and to love and to follow Jesus. So I want you to get up and group around them. We're going to spend some time just praying over them, and then in a little bit we're going to worship through song. <laughs>